0: Hi, this is Toby. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Science for Policy podcast. It's been a while, thankfully, since I've had to give one of my little introductions to apologize for audio quality. We've got quite good now, after 60-something episodes at uh, making good quality recordings at both ends for myself and the guest. But occasionally our best efforts fail and we have to rely on our backup systems. And that's what happened here. It's a really good conversation with a really interesting world-leading expert marred by, unfortunately, the occasional audio blip, which I hope is easy to overlook. Sorry about that. And on with the show. Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Jan-Peter Kranen. Professor Kranen is Founding Director Emeritus of the Leibniz Institute for Financial Research SAFE, bracket Sustainable Architecture for Finance in Europe, that's the name of the Institute, and Professor Emeritus of Finance at Goethe University's House of Finance. He has extensive experience in advising policymakers on how to regulate financial markets, including at European level, as a member of the high-level expert group on structural reforms of the EU banking sector, and as an advisor to the European Securities and Markets Agency, not to mention several other prominent advisory roles in Germany. So Jan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Um, thank you for inviting me. Hello, Toby. Hello.
0: Hello. I have to say, I quite enjoy the German habit of naming universities and research institutes after famous researchers. You've, you've collected Leibniz and Goethe yourself. That's not bad. I think perhaps you only need Einstein to complete the full set.
1: <laughs> well, but the, this connection is very real and very intensive. And actually, if you know about this Leibniz Institute, it grew out of the university, almost like an offspring, but institutionally and funding wise, it's now independent but keeps close bridges to the university. So research is an important basis for that institute. And that maybe links also to policy work uh, quite nicely.
0: Yeah, so the university can, can trace its origins back to Leibniz, right?
1: Uh, no, uh, the other way around. Ah. Uh, the university was here and Leibniz, the name of a, of a large number of research centers around Germany, all over Germany, in many disciplines and uh, we happen to be one in, in economics and we only joined that club if i may call it that way uh like two years ago and are fairly a new um, startup if you wish in the academic world
0: yeah great well then let's let's talk about the work you do um the main theme of this podcast of course is scientific advice for policy which it doesn't always be natural sciences of course but it does tend to mean sciences that have a certain degree of uh, I guess a claim of generality, and you 've advised policymakers on financial issues, so especially market regulation and i 'd really like to understand whether you think that is all part of the same stuff that 's just another kind of science advice or or whether there are analogies or overlaps between what you do and the other stuff. My first i 'm sure quite naive and clumsy question which I hope you can finesse in an answer, is to ask like what kind of advice do you give so scientists bring to the table, you know, bodies of knowledge and theory based on scientific investigation. So when you, as an economist, engage with policymakers, what do you bring to the table? Is it it the same or or something
1: different? So we are basically backed up by our own research with our experiences on particular fields of, uh, of the economy, and that's financial markets. That's the functioning of particular elements in financial markets. To give you an example... Uh, that relates to the global financial crisis a few few years ago, I have been working a lot on structured finance, which is a particular financial product that has been at the start of the financial crisis becoming of great importance. And there wasn't that much research at that time. Uh, But anyway, we are doing research on financial products. And then when a, a crisis happens that has something to do with such a product, we can use that information in let's say, trying to develop remedies, trying to develop uh, strategies, how to deal with the ensuing uh, problem. So that's the scientific basis. You have some research that relates to the problem. You try to take all your, let's say, your common sense in a way to apply it to a situation which always is slightly different from the uh, situation you might have studied in the lab or in, in empirical research before.
0: Okay, great. And the way you describe it, it sounds like uh, basically troubleshooting very often. So a problem comes along, the policymaker needs to understand how to solve it. They don't have that at their fingertips. And so they turn to you for advice.
1: No, I think troubleshooting is the way how you get recognized in policy circles. Right? So there is a situation, a crisis. uh, They look around. Is there anybody who has done anything on this? And you can uh, basically put up your hand and say, well, I have an idea. That might be an explanation why we are in trouble. Maybe you can you can solve it this way, that way, and uh, people, policymakers, may take your advice or not because you are not the only person uh, to give an advice. There is a competition of advisors for attention, uh, and th- that's when you get in a way recognized. And later, I, uh, afterwards, you may have more general comments on how legislation, how regulation should develop, and you will, as I did accompany a process of re-regulation as after the financial crisis over many years with some basic tools, some basic ideas in mind. And you always keep on pushing uh, policymakers to respect or to remember a certain idea or advice in the retooling of the regulatory framework.
0: And if I could ask a little more about the, the research that your advice is based on, what kind of research is this?
1: So I, I think the research I am doing or we were doing in, in an institute like ours uh, is, is truly academic research in a sense that you basically initially abstract from a particular troubling situation or problematic situation, but really try to understand how a certain regulatory rule, for instance, uh, impacts on the behavior of, let's say, investors or firms or banks. And so that you can generalize the relationship between a particular tool or regulation and the outcome that you observe in markets. So, And that is, in, in my eyes, in the eyes of our profession, this is scientific work. It also follows the rules of science, which is you try to be very transparent about the data you use. You explain your models. You have to prove, so to speak, the statements you are, you are doing. And then you try to come up out with uh, empirical work, which is analysis of data with theory in mind that you can replicate, that others can replicate, you publish in journals, you are peer reviewed in what you do. So all this is scientific uh, and leads to scientific papers, which are not the same as the advice you might give at at some, but they are the basis. Your, Your reputation builds on that and your knowledge and your understanding builds on that.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. You mentioned one important factor in the success of this kind of policy advice work, which is basically being in the right place at the right time and being the right person, yeah, having the knowledge that is needed at the time when it's needed. Are there other factors do you think that affect how successfully your advice lands with policymakers? Factors that can be kind of generalized.
1: Yeah, if I can expand on the what you just said, I think an important aspect is that you can convey to policymakers, the idea of being independent, and I think this is the most important consequence of doing scientific research as you as, as a living in an institution which is not really uh, in one way or the other financially linked to different uh, interest groups in that particular case. So, if you have, let's say if you are closely uh, in terms of funding associated, uh, let's say to to the financial industry. Uh, be it uh, the fund industry be it banking and then you come up with regulatory advice on some issue. Policy makers who don't follow all the details of your argument necessarily might always be suspicious that you may be driven by other motives than those that that have to do with your research and I think that's I would say now in looking back on the last 15 years maybe the most important let's say asset that I could use in my work was to say, well, I'm not speaking for a particular group. I'm not behind a particular interest group, but I try to, let's say, to orient my statements on welfare of the society, of the of members of society. I try, I say, I don't say I always get that, but that's basically our motivation when we are purely based in, a, in an academic world. So, and that is an advantage if people ask for your advice. Uh, I have frequently or repeatedly had the situation that I offered some idea, and the counterparts, which were policymakers, asked, Okay, so who is standing behind you? Who funds your work? Who funds your institution? And uh, when I could say, Well, this is basically uh, a public university that I'm working for, it's uh, funded with with, uh, let's say, competitive scientific money, competitively earned scientific money, you were in a better position to be heard, as if I would have said, well, this or that is my funding source, which is, uh, happens to be uh, one of the parties in a, in a certain conflict, that be the investors or, or uh, workers or, uh, or uh, entrepreneurs.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, okay, so that makes perfect sense, of course. This idea of being independent, um, I'm sure you know, is, is very strongly emphasized by science advisors uh, of all stripes in all domains. But from what you've just said, it sounds like this independence from vested interest, let's put it that way, is kind of something of a competitive advantage for you, which then implies that there are would-be advisors on financial issues who can't demonstrate independence in that way. You perhaps have other funding streams or are employed by commercial organizations or whatever, and whom policymakers are less inclined to trust for that reason. And that's interesting. I mean, I don't think I often hear it talked about quite that way. I mean, in other areas of science, I'd say there isn't so much a competitive advantage to being independent, but rather there's just like a clear line. Um, or at least it's supposed to be. Scientific advice is really only acceptable at all if it is demonstrably independent. And if it's not, then it counts as advocacy or something else. So do I take from what you've just said, that there isn't such a clear line in your field
1: of work? Yeah, I think there is not such a clear line. And uh, it is, It is. Uh, there are many people, I mean, the, the well, one of the the first insights that I had when I started to be more active on the policy side was, that it is, in a way, easy to have a voice. So many people have voices. So there are many voices in the room, many papers, many advisors, many advices given. But really, the art, the challenge is to get into the ear of the policymaker. So the the ear is the problem, not the voice. And originally, when I started all this, I thought, well, you just have to write a nice uh, op-ed or a nice policy paper where everything is is true and important and everybody will immediately recognize that but that's not the case because from the reader's point from the other side of the hedge, so to speak from the policymakers' point of view they cannot easily distinguish let's say uh uh independent uh advice from biased uh, advice they, how can you do this if they if they could do this easily they wouldn't need it in the first place they wouldn't need sure. it in the first place right so and, and since this is so, and since there are so many voices coming from all all sorts of organizations, uh, lobby groups, and so forth, um, this is, I think, the hardest also for policymakers to to make this distinction.
0: So, how do you help them make that
1: distinction? Oh Yeah, well, to make your, I mean, it is in a certain sense, it's never true that you are fully independent. This is a bit uh, of a misnomer. So, I wouldn't claim there is no nothing that biases me my my perception in my argument so that would be a bit making the point too strong but there is no obvious interest group that will let me bend my thinking my argument in a particular direction right at least i try always to be very transparent about my funding about my roles and so forth because i figured out that this matters uh, to be uh, seriously hurt also across party lines right so if you're in a in a country like like germany where you have typically not one party ruling and the rest uh, uh, tiny opposition groups, but uh, many parties rule, you have coalitions, you have to convince several people beyond the party lines. And they all have to take your argument serious and really read to it and don't put it easily in a a certain bucket and say, oh, this is this argument or that argument uh, that comes always with this party or that party. Uh, So, for instance, I have always tried to talk to all parties, not literally to all, but to those that we would consider in the inner part of the democratic spectrum. I always spoke to all those people who were willing to listen to me or to discuss with me.
0: Yeah, so this is a big deal. So what you're describing is that, I mean, someone in your field of work doesn't just have their academic expertise, their subject
1: expertise, they have
0: an awful lot of other skills and expertise uh for instance in navigating political landscapes
1: yeah i think this is very important that you have to to unlearn aca- academic speech or, or, or <laughs> so in the very early phase of policy advisory work also from my side but from colleagues as well the idea was i have a working paper or a published paper even uh, which is of course an academic paper, but it has all the important aspects in it that you would need to solve a particular policy problem. So you throw this paper at policymakers and say, Here it is you can you can go through the paper you I mean and you understand it, once you understand it, you will immediately see that it solves your problem. but this is uh, not the way communication works, so you have to learn to speak a language and uh, to uh, use channels that that policymakers can and will are willing to digest and so that is an exercise a bit along the lines that I said earlier you you have to find the ear of the policymaker and finding the ear is much more difficult than finding your own voice and do
0: policymakers know that they need this advice so I tell you why I'm asking because it seems to me at least I've, I've been told that an awful lot of politicians and you know, more generalists policymakers have some level of training and education in economics. It's like quite a common academic route through which people make it into government, right? And I was talking to a guest last summer. It was, it was Michael Bang Peterson in Denmark, who specializes in psychology and behavioral sciences. And there was an issue he perceived that policymakers often feel that they have like an instinctive understanding of how people think you know, we are all people. We all understand people on a basic level. Um, plus, they often had some kind of, as it were, pop psychology 101. And he mentioned economics as part of that, right? So he found that persuading politicians and policymakers that they can benefit from expert advice in that area, making them realize they even need it, can be a hard sell.
1: Um, yes and no. So I uh, so that's not a very good answer. But <laughs> so yes, in a sense of, Many of the aspects that have to do with finance are pretty complicated and complex, often require, let's say, second or third round effects on particular instruments and measures that are not really part of the common debate or common discourse. So even if people have a training in economics, often in politics, it's macroeconomics that people have some training of. Uh, this is not the same as what we do in finance. So we are really, and and I personally in my work, are concentrating on financial, uh, on advice on financial issues. So this always brings in the issue of financial markets, uh, the pricing of financial markets, which is a rather opaque thing for, for many people. And I think this brings an extra degree of, let's say, complexity that you not always find uh, in the thinking of uh, of people, even if they have an economic background, what is more difficult, I think, is to make people aware that they are not fully understanding the situation. So they often think we are we have it fully. We we understand how it is. Uh, so you can you can make as an example. You can talk about uh, green finance, right? uh, where, where everybody says, "Well, we now want to push the economy on the transition phase," and we as investors want to be part of that so we only invest in green assets or something like that and you need a deeper financial understanding to um, understand whether this action has really the impact that it has that is intended to have and so for that you sometimes have to tell policymakers listen the intention is really good your intention is wonderful and i subscribe to it but the path you are taking the type of instrument you're using is not delivering on this for this and this and this reason. Right? And, and that's where, and when this is heard and understood, then only the ear opens up for, for an idea.
0: Right. But you already have to be in the room to have that kind of conversation. And there has to be a match between what the policymaker needs and thinks they need and what you have to offer. So to go to a policymaker and say, hey, this idea, this thing that you're committed to and you've invested in, and you're plowing on with and you think you're doing okay at, well, actually, you know what Stop, because it might not work. And here's why. That's got to be one of the hardest modes of science advice to make effective because you're not responding to a need or at least a need they're aware of. You're trying to kind of wedge yourself in where there isn't a a science advice shaped hole.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, policymakers are not there to question their ideas all the time. its, it's not they are, they are not in a debate club, nor are they trying to win an argument challenge, an Oxford-style debate, so to speak. They want to deliver. And, and if they have found a story that they find convincing, they go for it. So if you want to, to, to settle, stop a while, wait for a minute, let us really think through whether this is the, the best way to achieve your instrument. You need this time of reflection. And I would say what is needed for making people reflect on issues besides their ability and willingness to, to, to stop for a short while is trust. You need to have a trusted relationship with these persons beforehand. So when you start, try to establish trust in the moment where they have a problem, this is too late, they will only refer to people they, in a way, have some, had some contact with and some positive vibration our remembrance remained, so that's why I have thought I have built my, um, my my work a lot around networks that is that can grow over time, and that have a lot to do of being willing to talk to people under circumstances where there is no actual need for advice, but there is an opportunity to talk. You know, this is in itself not easy to to manage but you can you can organize that and later when the problem arises they may remember you and say ah wasn't there this person we had a good conversation he was listening to my arguments he made suggestions that i could use later on now why not talk to this person Uh, It's a bit like in in, in finance, we speak a lot about relationship lending as a long-lasting financial relationship that banks are pursuing where private information is collected. It's quite similar. A policy relationship also, I mean, a relationship between, let's say, academics or or would-be advisors and the clientele often develops around innocent situations where you meet these people, you talk to them, but you establish sort of a feeling I can listen to that person. He will not screw me or, or, or want to push me in this particular direction. That's helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. I do want to ask you about the very common distinction that science advisors make between providing evidence and providing policy recommendations. The question is basically like, is evidence everything or is there more? And some science advisors will say that their role is entirely to provide the evidence, hopefully you know well packaged and presented in a way that's clear why and how it's relevant and so on. But then it's the job of the policymaker to work with that evidence in, uh, in any way they see fit to construct policy changes that are needed. And others will say, "No, concrete policy recommendations are valuable and part of the science advisor's job too. So I read into what you say so far that a lot of what you do is is really very applied indeed. You're presenting policymakers not only with evidence but also with concrete solutions to their specific problems.
1: yeah, well we we also present them with evidence. Right? this is part of developing an argument. So I mean if if I think about uh, let's say if we can speak about green finance, for instance, uh, where, you, where you where the idea is investors uh are offered particular portfolios to invest in and then because they do so they somehow trigger uh a faster transition into a more carbon free uh um, environment uh, so, so this um this can be backed up with with academic work so you can show well if uh, people invest in a particular product And many people do so, like following a green green strategy. How does this change relative prices in markets? Uh, So does your portfolio composition that is green have any impact on the relative prices of green and brown assets and their cost of capital? And if you can establish this as an empirical finding, you can use this in your argument. So the argument will not simply present this evidence and say, you have to chew on this bone now and find out what it means. But the policy advice would say, well, this means that this and this labeling of of green product is probably falsely labeled as such, because the impact that that you are selling to clients and where they pay a price for isn't happening. Uh, It cannot be demonstrated, or it could be the converse that you show it's, it's working well. And uh, this type of strategy deserves the label uh, um, that it's sustainable finance or, or green finance or something like that. And the argument is, is in substance, a scientific argument, but you take the next step, which is what does it imply for regulatory work?
0: But I guess because of the nature of the areas that you work on, those areas are themselves Engaging with policy, like it's like political science in that way. The very subject matter of your research is policy and its effects.
1: Well, no, the academics, let's say publications, the world of of they they are far away from policymakers. So they are just well. So for instance, in if you go into uh, finance journals, you have a, a long list of them, and they are completely away from policy in a sense that they try to establish. Causality between certain instruments and certain results, and try to show that this is true in particular markets, and countries, by using good data, or maybe over longer periods of time, or globally, whatever uh, the the problem is. But the, that is a literature, and a, I'd say a discussion in itself that is far away from policymakers. And this in a way is is different also because if you, I mean, one one thing that that. Uh, distinguishes a lot of scientific work that's in the sciences from what we do in economics is this behavioral component that you mentioned already, so that if you have an insight, the people in the market, in the economy, will also learn this insight and will adjust their behavior, which is less so in the science, right? So if, if you make a model about how certain viruses are behaving, they are not learning this and and and, <laughs> and uh, you are understanding and embedding it in their own behavior. They behave as they are programmed, basically. But if you are in, in an economic environment, in financial markets, nobody is programmed. All are learning all the time. And if I have an insight that so- some strategies have a certain effect or impact, then and I publish that, then market participants immediately use this information and change their behavior. So that makes it, I think, uh, challenging, I would say, (laughs) to come up with with, with general rules.
0: No no kidding. So I feel like I would not be let off the hook very easily if I did not ask you at least a bit about 2008. And I'm sure this is a topic you're thoroughly well rehearsed on, if not thoroughly bored of. So I apologize for bringing it up. But I do think it's important to bring it up because the global financial crash of 2008 is so often held up as an example of the failure of academic uh, financial expertise, making it into policy, you know, all this sophisticated scholarship and somehow you still didn't see your stuff coming. What's the point? Is that fair?
1: Well, I think this is is unfair because, uh, and so let let me give my own account, right? Why why the the whole financial crisis, uh, I mean, started at 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 one particular uh, identifiable spot. And that has to do with structured finance, with the the use of particular financial products that were, when they were constructed, conceived as being very safe and sound and actually a fantastic instrument for banks to share risks with other participants in the market. And uh, that was advocated even by big policymakers. Greenspan, who was the... Uh, uh, chairman of the Fed in the US at the time was a very well-known advocate of structured finance as the new uh, standard for financial inst- institutions to use risk-sharing instruments. Uh, and that the world, because of this increased risk-sharing, has become a safer place was a often heard claim by central bankers around the world. So that's why they were also very uh, relaxed about the long, almost silent situation in financial markets in the run-up to the crisis. Uh, what we found out much later was that the understanding, the analytical understanding of these products, these structured finance products on bank balance sheets by central banks and supervisory agencies was much less present than at least we in academia thought. So at the time the the exchange data-wise and model-wise between central banks and academia wasn't that intense as it is today. And so I I did research on this uh, structured finance things, found out certain details before the crisis, uh, which if I would have understood that they generalize the behavior of everybody uh, would have in a way allowed me to predict that uh, there is a crisis looming but i didn't do this step so although i knew the little things that went wrong afterwards i always thought these are small uh exceptions to the rule and the rule is different right? the rule is as greenspan said it's the risk sharing instrument that stabilizes the world but the truth was differently and we only found out later and so, in that sense, um, that you could say there was a lack of coordinated uh, wisdom, uh, and uh, and, uh, and that's why uh, we, we didn't see it earlier. And I would now say there was a lack of, I would say, critical research on statements made by public authorities. And I kept this in mind, if people stand up and say, This and this is a safe way to go somewhere. I would now be more willing to question that and say, could you please give a full explanation why this is safe? And then I would ask, do you really have the data that makes you believe that makes this statement like an academic statement where you have all the data, you know the models, you do the analysis in a transparent way. People can replicate only then I trust such a a statement. the world is safer, or even unsafer, as it as it uh, was some other time ago. Uh, so that would be my my uh, my, my first attempt. So uh, did did did, it, did we fail as academics? It, yeah, I would say in a certain way we did, but it was, uh, I would say, a shared responsibility of the the captains <laughs> on the on the financial ships and the the academic uh, world around them.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, and the implication is not that this kind of advice is useless. It's that this kind of advice is essential. And if it had worked properly, then the outcome would have been better.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, what came after when the crisis happened? Then I think it was the, the high time of research to try quickly to understand what the main reasons are. So, of course, the overnight rescue operations by central banks and governments—they were in a way. Uh, uh uh without alternative right so they they had to do it and there was no academic uh, there were no academic wisdom but all, a few weeks later the first studies have been done the first thinking has been done the first debate exchange between bankers and academics has happened and quickly emerged let's say a set of of uh, possible reasons for this crisis also why it basically uh, uh, was uh, uh, was so contagious. It was. Uh, it happened in one spot, but uh, in a very short while, the consequences were felt all over the globe. In many institutions, even in banks that believed to be very regional, far away, like the Landesbank in in Eastern Germany, where everybody thought this is a very Eastern Germany thing, suddenly collapsed because of a of a of a bombshell that exploded uh, thousands of kilometers away. Right, which was Lehman. And so there were connections that people didn't notice, didn't know about before. So after that, of course, new generation of research and so forth was generated on the one side. But also, I would say, analytical thinking, how we can avoid that in the future. So what was really the, I would say, the, the weak moment that destroyed so many banks in the, in the, after the Lehman crisis? And, uh, and that I think advised um, the regulator quite a bit. So there was a p- positive impact of research on, uh, on policy making after the financial crisis, not before.
0: Yeah, interesting. So you might imagine I'm kind of equally fatigued, I suppose, with talking about the COVID-19 pandemic in these kinds of conversations, because of course, as people say accurately, the pandemic was a watershed moment for science advice. Suddenly everyone was talking about how science advice interacts with policymaking and how that relationship should work. And an awful lot has changed and developed and become clearer and I think improved since then. So a lot of what you just described from 2008 happened in 2020 in other fields, especially I think the structural stuff, the institution, you know, policymakers suddenly realizing they didn't have the connections they needed to get the advice they needed really quickly. And so having to kind of improvise and, and shoot from the hip from the very beginning, more or less successfully, um, without relying on evidence, while they also cast about desperately to try and get the connections and the people on board that they needed to go forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean this was in, in the pandemic, there were focused research centers that did for years and maybe decades of work on exactly that topic. I mean, they didn't work on COVID, but on pandemic, on viruses, and these could, they could immediately be activated. So there was, a, I mean, in Germany, there is this one, RKI, there is a certain leading institute that is even a, a central institute of the government, if you wish, of the state, that that coordinates research efforts across the country, that has, in a way, a speaker role for these uh, competencies, and would be immediately activated in this. And that worked, I think, very well. In the financial crisis there was nothing like this so in a way the research center that i have been helped to set up after the crisis is a response to this so if there is a next financial crisis we hopefully have some let's say informed people in that institute that will be happy and prepared to uh, to think quickly about remedies or even in the run-up to give warnings that something of- that sort of might happen again,
0: and this is possible and and compatible, you think, with the kind of strong emphasis on independence that you mentioned well, at the start of our conversation.
1: Um, the more independent you are or try to be, there is a downside to this, right? So the very independent are also not very well connected because that defines their independence, but this means also that they are not very well informed in many cases. so uh, so with proximity to the financial markets, to the financial industry, comes information, comes understanding, but also comes dependence. Right, And so there is a balance. So I wouldn't say maximize independence. Then you may maximize not understanding well what's going on. You may be completely independent, but it may be more or less common sense what you say and no more. Uh, um, I, I can make this example also with respect to the research we did Prior to the financial crisis, we had research project with all the banks in Germany on the way they dealt with structured finance products. So in order to make this happen, you need to be, I wouldn't say good friend, but you need to be friendly to these institutions so that they provide you with the data that you have a, a, a good research surrounding. And of course, that makes you uh, be connected to all these institutions beforehand. And then, when the crisis comes, you, you you basically have to free yourself of these connections and say, "I think this and this went wrong." And there is uh, so the effort uh, that I put in was not so much in condemning one institution or the other, but was really building a new regulatory framework that is uh, hindering the re- repetition of such a situation. So the other and the situation was: large banks have so little equity that when there is a problem the state has to bail them out or risk a major uh, uh, disruption in the economy because this bank suddenly disappears which really gives financing to thousands and millions of companies and 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 so that's that's like a hold up situation of the banks vis-a-vis the state and you want to avoid that and that was then our I mean, I say our, because uh, many people work on this field, but certainly for me, the main hypothesis, how do we minimize the hold up risk in, a, in financial institutions uh, vis-a-vis the state?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is why I asked about the compatibility of independence. So you can perform that role despite the connections you have built up over time with the industry?
1: Yeah, well, you, in, in some sense, I disconnected that. <laughs> so that was that then you, you have to... because what we suggested was not really in the interest of most of these financial institutions asking them to to hold more equity so you, you I didn't become a big friend of the financial industry thereafter also not a big enemy but i mean it was basically the it was the i would say the talk of the town the talk of of europe that we want to to go away from, from uh, these uh, hold-up situations, these bailout uh, situations. I think the, the main insight that we could provide early on from the academic side was to say, you need a special insolvency code for large banks. Large banks are different from large corporations, other corporations like car companies also, because this interconnection Uh, under the carpet that you can't see that goes via financial contracts in in a very subtle way, are so heavy that you have to rethink our insolvency regime that we have uh, developed over centuries or over decades in most countries and make it one that is special for these type of interconnected institutions. And I think that was more or less an academic drive to do this. And then also, I think uh, academic research helped to think through what these interdependencies really mean and how you can deconstruct them or how you can control them make them transparent make them manageable
0: yeah well um i want to say thank you very much indeed i wasn't kidding at the start when i said my questions would be naive and clumsy but you've really been very enlightening in response not to mention frank and open and uh, a very enjoyable conversation partner so it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much professor jan peter
1: Thank you, Toby. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapere. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruczuk. Sapere is a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies, and learned societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and, as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And this last bit is particularly good.